1: Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking, not for the first time in recent months, about the state of the media, specifically print journalism in this case. At the risk of getting like too broad right from the start, I don't think that we really have new episodes of Punching Out anymore. They're just continuations of topics we've discussed in the past. And to some extent, like, obviously, we think that all of these workplace issues are interconnected across industry and across field. But it, it does seem like in recent months, recent years, even, the issues have kind of boiled down into very similar seeming stories where We're just kind of plopping in the proper nouns of the week and voila, a new episode.
2: Well, that's what happens when you have a uniquely unimaginative, uncreative and completely blinkered CEO class that just keeps doing the same thing over and over again, regardless of circumstances. If they wanted us to produce new episodes, they would find new messed up things to do that would actually be, you know, different and visionary. But instead, they're all cut from the same cloth. They're all doing the same thing. And so we end up with the show that we have.
3: So let me get this straight. You're saying that CEOs need to be more creatively evil just for
2: for us? Is that is that, Did I hear that right?
1: I mean – Somebody's got to keep way, this show going.
2: Thank you. <laughs> and also, the way that they're currently doing it – Is proving very effective. So I think if they get more creative, workers might actually win some of these fights.
1: Yeah. To get concretely into why we're talking about the media today, the New York Times has decided that instead of its traditional sports desk, it will now be serving the area of sports with reporters from the athletic, which uh, the New York Times purchased. Was it earlier this year? Was was it that recently? Last year. A key distinction between people who work for The Athletic and people who had worked at the New York Times Sports Desk is that athletic writers are not unionized. And so this becomes pretty clearly a workaround around the existing unionized workforce at the New York Times uh, reporting on sports. Union avoidance, once again, rearing its ugly head on punching out.
2: The 21st century version of chess books, you know, the ones that have like pre-done games that you can kind of follow, should be union avoidance books. It's like a, a the worst choose your own adventure genre. The workers at your newspaper unionized. Go to page 36 if you want to close the desk or whatever it is. We've seen this. With basically any media company where journalists have decided to, well, become workers and and fully use their power as labor, as the people who create the value of the site, they have all been faced by tactics like this. The New York Times, you could see it a mile away when they bought The Athletic, that it was some kind of precursor to this. And obviously, the people at the sports desk who will now be moved into various other things, which means the coverage of fashion, health, and cooking is going to be scintillating for the next uh, few months before they inevitably start laying them off, are worried that this is going to happen to other departments because what the Times has essentially done is subcontract to itself, which in a country, in a society that made sense, would not be possible, but... We live in the United States of America in 2023, so it's not only possible, but probably going to happen with basically no stoppage.
1: Right. It is weird that under the New York Times, a newspaper with unionized reporters, there is this subcompany that is not unionized. It's weird that those two things exist under the same roof in some regard. I, I do think it's also worth noting that, like, the New York Times sports section is not, it's a different beast than other sports sections at local papers across the U.S., right? It's, um, the New York Times is a New York based newspaper, but it is also the capital P, capital R paper of record, which has to, Report for a national audience and, you know, an audience that thinks of itself as cosmopolitan and worldly. And so, where other papers might have like beat reports on Aaron Boone's bullpen management and why the Mets lost this game, the New York Times often will have stories about business dealings in European soccer or soft focus human interest pieces with headlines like, In Kazakhstan, a wrestler gets his second chance.
2: Again, to go back to the the purchasing of The Athletic, because that's what enables this move, right? It's weird because The Athletic, in and of itself, was also a publication catering to a sports fan who considered themselves a little bit more cosmopolitan. They were notably, I think, one of the first big-time sports publications to append U.S. and European soccer coverage to their existing platform, rather than be a soccer-focused publication, they made they they gambled that that would be very interesting to the athletics audience, which it was. A lot of people have kept their athletic subscriptions up because it is a place to read about that sport. And the athletic itself has recently reduced its beats in hockey and Major League Baseball, uh, depending on some nebulous conflagration of figures that they've determined constitutes local interest. So they, they've they already done some of the Times' dirty work for them in that regard. But the reason I want to drill down on that part is that The Athletic was built explicitly to kill local newspaper sports coverage. That's not me saying that. That's them saying that. They said that from the foundation of the company, and they got plenty of money pumped into the company so that they could keep rolling out cheap subscriptions like a dollar a month for a year or whatever so that they could continue reducing that coverage in local media, forcing sports writers off their jobs or to look for jobs with The Athletic so that they could continue doing what they were passionate about. The New York Times buys them, uses them as a cudgel against its union sports writers, and The Athletic has already sort of refocused, quote unquote, its coverage in the first place. By continuing to appeal to this audience of sports fans that thinks of itself as a cut above, you know, your average sports American yelling at the TV in a bar. So there's a lot of cultural stuff, I think, is what I'm trying to say, wrapped up in, in this particular story.
1: To some extent, I think it also reflects like there's like in online media, there is become this chasm where the middle ground used to be. By which I mean, like, you either have to be a hyper specific niche that you are focused on and drilling in on for the audience of people who wants to hear a 20 minute podcast segment about the Mets fifth round draft pick, which, spoiler alert, that's segment two today. (laughs) If you aren't the hyper specific, like, super analysis, you have to. then like cover everything in this field like as broadly as possible there's not really a middle ground on which like local newspaper sports sections used to exist just from personal experience as somebody who used to read the democrat and chronicle that sports section used to be a lot thicker it used to have a lot more original content you know columnists local columnists to write about Not just the Bills and the Sabres, but local high school sports and whatever was going on in western New York sports. And over the years, especially as Gannett took over, that dwindled and it became even a sports section where you couldn't reliably get the baseball box scores because so many games ended after the print deadline. Because that just kept moving up because they have to print it an office away at their national headquarters, wherever those are. And this is a story being repeated at local outlets across the country. The New York times is to some degree, a, I mean, they are an outlier, a very real outlier in the media landscape, but they are this story. They also happen to be symbolic of what's going on everywhere else.
3: Yeah. So we've talked about this before, but the ultimate, consequence of this is consolidation into a few targeted things that matter like we've talked before about how the the consolidation of media leads it to where if you're not in a major urban area like New York or LA you don't matter and and the issues that affect you and your local stuff aren't being recorded and are not being talked about which can and does lead to the ability for people and bad actors to slip stuff by us. One of the articles, I can't remember which one, from The Nation, uh, had a line in it that I love that was talking about this merger. Um, Meanwhile, every team owner aiming to soak a city of its tax dollars, every coach with an ugly cat past, every commissioner making side deals with bad faith actors is breathing easier today. Like, that's what happens when we axe media. And when, even for something as honestly trivial as sports are, foundationally, like, it, it matters because that's how they win over us. That's how they get us to play their game because we won't know any better because nobody's keeping an eye on it.
2: I think it's, it's so that that is from the Nation article, if I remember correctly, as Dave Zirin who has made a career out of covering this intersection between sports and politics and sort of the, the culture around it and all of that, great writer in that sense. And I think it's key to mention the part about the fact that these are things that if you're a sports fan, you should care about. Even though it is a superficially trivial thing, I think that the way you talk about sporting events, the way that you treat the business of sports. I can't believe that the bid is becoming serious now, but we talked about having an uncreative and blinkered CEO class. And that is true, no matter what industry they are in, because they all get trained the same way. It's what we talked about when we talked about airlines. We said this too. Every time we go back to this, well, we find another CEO who was trained the exact same way, regardless of what they were working in. And sports team owners are no different. Frankly, league commissioners aren't really any different now. There is zero distance between Gary Bettman and some high-powered lawyer who happens to work for a bank instead of the NHL. There's no difference in, in the lack of principle. The result of that is when we lose sports media, we lose one of the few avenues we have to talk to people Regardless of how invested they are in formal politics or any of that, about things like corruption, like what happens when a team owner decides, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not allowed to have all the public money I want to build a new stadium, so I'm going to move to Las Vegas," which is a monument to man's hubris made into a city. With this of Bradford William Davis, who broke the two baseball story for Insider and then broke the three baseballs. This time it's personal story, also for Insider got laid off from insider this year. Those were big stories that attracted money and clicks to that site, and that didn't get him job security. So there is clearly an attempt to restrict the visibility of these things from the public. And I think it's at least partly because this is an avenue to get into other things, starting from the point of view of this is a fun pursuit that we all enjoy. We enjoy watching ball games or whatever. So let's start from there and then build out from that. Let's talk about these other things. And that in and of itself makes this a much more critical juncture for media. Because you are taking away commentary on this public space. Commentary that is, in many cases, when it's not Brett Stevens, intelligent and interesting and might, I don't know, encourage curiosity and and wonder. An amazement at things. And instead, no, it's just going to be the New York Post calling, trying to find ways to not swear at Aaron Boone.
1: I, I forget which one of you had raised um, the topic of like corruption among owners. And it, it's worth pointing out that like the athletic itself isn't exactly clear from ethical questions. No. So this, <laughs> It's in a uh, Vanity Fair article uh, with the headline, There Hasn't Been Empathy, NYT Staff Frustration Spills Over After Sports Desk Closure, written by Charlotte Klein just this past week. Quoting from the article, "Time staffers also raise concerns over differing standards between the Athletic and the Times. When brought up during Thursday's meeting, Deputy wire cutter and Athletic Publisher Cliff Levy, a former Times Masthead member who used to oversee standards for the Times newsroom, said that he knows more about standards at the Times than almost anyone else and claimed the, quote, core standards and journalistic values of the Athletic are the same as those of the Times. Times employees have been particularly vexed by Shams Char- Charania, who works for both the Athletic and the gambling company, company fan duel and last month impacted betting odds with a tweet multiple staffers have told me this is going to come up more and more often as leagues and media outlets embed themselves with gambling operations was it the like regional sports networks that broadcast a whole bunch of mlb teams games recently was linked to Bally sports the yes like, and recently went under.
2: Mm-hmm. Valley which, had like, I think, three different RSNs, maybe more.
1: Yeah, they, they had a few.
2: Yeah. A bar stool, obviously, it has is, is basically a gambling company with a media company attached to it at this point. And like
1: you can't watch a sports broadcast now without being inundated with ads for mm-hmm. DraftKings' newest way to hook you.
2: And of course, every one of these leagues. If it's a grift, the leagues are into it. I mean, look at Crypto, uh, any of this, like MOB umpires have not forgotten about Major League Baseball umpires wearing an FTX patch. Still one of the funniest things that Rob Manfred has done as commissioner. Speaking of commissioners making deals with bad faith actors, I think making a deal with Sam Bankman-Fried has, has got to be up there as far as, as incompetence goes. But... That's the game we're playing, no pun intended. You can't... Nobody makes money for making stuff anymore... Unless you're in some kind of extractive industry. Like, if you're oil, or natural gas, or mining... You still manage to make money on the backs of a lot of human blood and pulverized bone. But if you're in in any kind of media industry you don't tend to make money off of subscriptions. In fact, you intentionally lose money on those to instead raise funding from VCs and angel investors and find other ways to stay afloat while you don't make a profit because your job isn't to produce coverage. Your job is to kill the competition. So that when finally, as you pointed out, Gannett comes in and takes over the Democratic Chronicle and turns it into USA Today Rochester, and your only sports coverage is like, two high school games and Sal Majorana bloviating about the Bills this week, Your the response of most readers is like, well, I didn't care in the first place because the newspaper was down to nothing. It is an active attempt to make people disinvest from the media so that then you can point at the numbers, say the line went down too far, so we have to sell. I'm sorry, that's how it works. And then you don't have to produce anything. And the, the, the gambling link is part of that because it's one of the few ways to make money. You get other people to give you their money.
1: You know, I, I'm glad you bring up that like, The Athletic does not turn a profit. It And it really isn't designed to turn a profit. It is designed to destroy local newspapers. It is designed to undercut these uh, outlets until The Athletic is the only game in town. And in effectively conquering the New York times in this way, they've gone a long way towards achieving that goal. But here, like the athletic is more comparable to something like Uber or any number of VC backed quote unquote tech companies that are just the repackaging of existing products with non-unionized labor, right? This is Not just a sports media story, but this is the story of the entire economy in the 21st century. Companies finding ways to, quote unquote, innovate and disrupt uh, by skirting around the existing laws and labor regulations and, and doing it at such a scale that they can't really be called on it without everything toppling over.
2: And that when they finally do get called on it, John Roberts will step in and make sure that the Supreme Court puts its imprimatur on it and says, actually, no, that's fine. That's the thing. The ultimate play here is these corporations are gigifying the entire economy to the point where eventually this is going to result in a general labor fight that goes all the way up to him, and then he will finally strike dead anything left of labor law in this entire country. Because right now is a perfect time for them to do so before unions start winning too often and before too many other workers start looking at this. Because that's another thing that's been brought up in response to this. That, you know, right now, not to get tangential, but we're recording this as the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America are on strike. And people have pointed out, like, this is sports, this is entertainment. If people that are highly visible, Go on strike right now. It might actually make those of us who are average, you know, work uh, work a day, have to live paycheck, which some of these people also are. To be fair, but it might make the rest of us start thinking, "Well, damn, that's that's the same thing that happens in my workplace. That's the stuff that happens in my industry." And I don't know how true that is because I think your average American is going to be more bothered by the fact that they can't see. They're they're going to be more angry about the lack of new content to consume then they will be about the demands placed on writers and actors whom they consider to be the elite. But I do think that it allows some of us to start talking to others about that. I think that's a productive conversation that you can have, but you have to be able to report on it, and that's what they're trying to prevent.
1: Before we close this segment, I I think it's worth quoting a bit from the News Guild and the writers affected by this. In the Vanity Fair article, they quote a bit from a staff meeting that the Times held in the wake of this, and executive editor Joe Kahn is quoted as saying, you know, quote, acknowledged that the choreography was not perfect and called it a difficult situation, to which one Times staffer responded, it was a crappy response, just bleeping apologize there hasn't been empathy and there also just hasn't been honesty says another noting that the sports desk has been quote begging for information for months all of us are completely dumbfounded it just feels like they made the wrong decision at every point the silver lining i guess of of when capital makes enemies out of reporters and journalists is you're going to hear about it those people are very good at telling stories and you know, describing things that happened. And so in every story like this, where a newspaper closes down, you get a lot of fun quotes like we have in this Vanity Fair article. Unfortunately, fun quotes are not viable as legal tender, which is a real shame about the whole situation.
3: Oh my God. The posters would rule in that case
2: yeah don't don't give people ideas people on social media already have inflated senses of their own importance as especially ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter we don't need to blow any more smoke up their butts
1: fair um we should close this segment here uh when we come back we'll talk a bit about the um broader media landscape i i, I guess is where we go with the next segment and um how this story reflects the broader trend that you you're probably familiar with already we've probably talked about it within the last couple months we'll be back
0: you're listening to punching out on w-a-y-o-l-p rochester if you'd like to continue slacking off you can find all of our past episodes on itunes and soundcloud remember your boss isn't listening but we are
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah.
2: Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys.
1: We talked in the first segment today about how the New York Times has replaced its sports section full of unionized writers and reporters with writers and reporters at the Non-Unionized Athletic, a company the Times purchased last year. For all the reasons why companies typically replace unionized labor with non-unionized labor, because it costs less and you don't have to deal with pesky worker power. You know, it's just a cleaner way of doing business, isn't it? In this segment, we we should talk about the broader media landscape, which uh, continues to be very ugly and very bad. Um, We talked In one of our recent episodes about how Vice had laid off a bunch of staffers, I don't remember if at that time they had officially announced that they'd be going into bankruptcy or not, but nevertheless they have gone into bankruptcy since that episode. And something people have noted in the last week or so is that Boy, they sure gave a lot of executives bonuses the week before filing for bankruptcy. That's interesting,
3: huh? That's you know, that's a convenient timing there. I wonder if they had any uh, ulterior motives or or any other motivations there going on.
2: It it really whips that the United States bankruptcy system is mostly a way for corporations to divest themselves of obligations to their workers. Obviously, you know, two of us are recording this from Rochester and Kodak is the famous local case, went into bankruptcy. And then once they had been authorized to kind of clear their pension obligations and no longer owed anything to longtime employees who were out on their ear and had to go find second careers often you know, 30, 40 years into a Kodak career, suddenly they happened to discover that they had this patent they were sitting on for some kind of sober nitrate thing that was super useful in touchscreens right around the time that the iPad was taking over as the official device of the 21st century. And again, the fact that no one along the line, no judge, no prosecutor, nobody seems to be like, that's suspicious maybe we should do something about that 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 certainly seems like you did an end run around you know having to maintain any kind of obligations to your to your labor force the fact that that never happens it's you know it's it's almost like this country's not not meant for working people
1: i was listening to a podcast the other day uh, remap radio which is hosted by former vice staffers and they talked a bit in the revelations about these executive bonuses about uh life in Vice's final days and in the aftermath of all that, because they can't get severance payments while this bankruptcy proceedings are unfurling until like the government clears vice to pay its bills. So that's all being held up. But even before bankruptcy, Vice had been shedding costs in very weird ways they had established like an elaborate self-eval program that by the time the end of the year rolled around, they no longer wanted to pay that contractor who had designed the program. And so they just kind of discarded all of the self-reviews and the cross-reviews that employees had done throughout the year. So just wonderful stuff from uh, our betters, you know, the people who make this economy happen.
2: Life and Vice's Final Days is my favorite Christian novel. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you name your media outfit that, the fact that nobody was like ready for this to happen from day one is kind of a problem. You cannot call a company. I mean, I know the, the company officially has a different name, but you can't call a media company Vice and not expect it to do shady stuff oh oh i'm getting the finger i'm about to get corrected
1: is their official name
2: virtue no <laughs> definitely. that would be way funnier but no it's like global media incorporated it's such a boring name you'd expect it to be in like the villain in a disney movie yeah that's that's a villain name Yeah, right
1: company should be owning the new york times not vice
2: you're right you're right Also, just to be clear, we're not talking about the Mets fifth round draft pick during this segment.
1: Oh, no. Okay,
2: cool. I just wanted to make sure. It came up. I I might have prepared the wrong thing. Sorry.
1: Our apologies to everybody who was excited for discussion of.
2: You're Mets fans. You're used to (laughs) disappointment.
1: Unfortunately, stories like what happened to Vice, stories like what's going on at the New York Times are. Basically commonplace in the journalism industry. There's an article by Luke O'Neill on his Substack. At least I think it's built off of Substack. It kind of looks like Substack. The name of the name of his outlet, which he runs, is "Welcome to Hell World," which is all too appropriate. This is from an article last week. Quote, 2023 is already shaping up to be one of the worst years ever to work in media, and that is keeping in mind that almost every year preceding it that I've been in the business has also been one of the worst years ever to work in media. It sucks out here, one expert, me, has said. It stinks. As of June 1st, there were already 17,436 jobs cut industry-wide, which is the highest year to date on record. That includes major layoffs at BuzzFeed and Vice and ESPN and many others. That is so many jobs, right? Like we've made the comparison on the show before and like, we're not the only ones to make it that like the coal industry has probably that many workers today. And yet it gets treated as, in some circles as a sacred cow that we couldn't possibly uh, shift those workers into green industry. It just couldn't be done. Like the amount, the scale at which media has declined is something that I think a lot of people just don't recognize, even as it's happened under their noses because like things fill the gap. It's not like you've consumed less media in the intervening years right you've just gone to twitter or gone on facebook instead of reading the newspaper or reading a blog or you know everything got swallowed up by the same few outlets. Uh, in the case of sports everything is now either on the athletic which a lot of issues there we laid them out the first segment or league websites which are you know Good for highlights and all, but maybe not the most trustworthy places to find
2: information about what the league is doing beyond the field. And it's important to note that this this seems like a particularly bleak moment. The paper of record, and not just the paper of record, but also I think one of the articles mentions that the LA Times did something similar, which... Doesn't seem to be happening yet. They're still functioning as the Dodgers' unofficial PR machine over there. But that's fine. They can do what they want over there. We don't get there, or to this point, we don't get here, without a lot of the intervening moments. So, for example, SB Nation, right, Sports Blog Nation, was supposed to represent a new approach in how we did sports blogging. And instead, it was very much what you're talking about. It was a ton of people being paid either nothing or a very small amount of money to maintain fan-side blogs for teams that they were passionate about. The idea was to draw on that passion and use that to power these blogs. Then, of course, SB Nation went the way of the Dodo, and instead we have Secret Base, which is great for what it is, but it's not the same thing. Some of those blogs have been able to succeed independently, but they are, as you pointed out, very niche publications. They're never going to compete with even like a major paper, let alone The Athletic or or one of these other national sports companies that it always has some other side hustle going to actually make any kind of money. So nothing we, the only publications that have been able to outlast all of this, I'm coming at it from the baseball point of view because that's the sport I know best, but are things like Baseball Prospectus, Baseball America that have always been paywall and that have always been research-focused, investigation-focused publications that have used that to be able to pay their staff. And they're very proud of that fact. What's his name? J.J. Cooper, a writer for Baseball America, regularly will post about why Baseball America has always decided to be a 100% paywalled. Baseball Prospectus has decided to partner with Defector, a publication that is semi-paywalled, to... Post some of its content over there to attract you to then subscribe because if you're reading Defector the there's a pretty good chance you like prospectus as well so there's there's attempts there to carve out little corners of the world, but what's definitely understandable is that most of us don't live in a world where we can just drop money on a subscription site without thinking about it, and that helps leagues and papers and companies make these decisions more easily because they know that if they shut down these sites, you're not going to go somewhere that's actually independent. You're going to be reading, you know, whatever your team's beat reporter writes for MLB.com. You're going to be subject to whatever slop Manfred wants to throw out to, to the audience, you know, whatever slam he wants on Oakland athletics fans or whatnot. And that obviously makes the, the landscape of media bleaker, more argumentative, less objective, less independent, and sadder. Because we all know that all of these leagues are doing weird stuff to ensure the popularity of their sport. They're playing with a product. They're playing around with uh, all sorts of things. And the last time that they had this much control over what people knew about the sport, most of them were outright, like, Favoring teams or or trying to create storylines, and I I think you're going to see. I mean, we know that there's already a comeback of that.
1: Just from my own personal experience, uh, after graduating college, my first writing gig was for a now defunct website called Empire of Soccer, which was focused, as you might imagine, on soccer. I was writing articles about Major League Soccer every week, you know, recaps, breaking news, that sort of thing. Stuff very similar to what you would see on an SB Nation fan blog. And I enjoyed that work. You know, it was something that I liked doing. It was something that, you know, I felt was, you know, fun for being work. I also never got paid for it, right? That is sort of the nature of independent blogging and writing for exposure at that time and like i said that site even the one that didn't pay its writers now defunct because the economics weren't there right there's you know it's hard to know what to um like how to thread that needle right and and you pointed to the Subscription model that uh, outlets like Defector and Baseball Perspectives have, which so far have kept those outlets afloat, but it does keep a lot of useful information behind a paywall. And for readers, it is maybe not the ideal. We've talked about how the New York Times, they're reporting behind a paywall, the Washington Post behind a paywall. Obviously, we have criticisms with these outlets, But they are preferable to a lot of the garbage that is not paywalled out there. A lot of the, uh, you know, right-wing trolls and you know, media farms that have cropped up to give people a form of the news that is not true but is free.
2: Is is not true. Is free and is consumable because that's part of it too, the attention economy, right? This always annoys me because I always feel like I'm fully boomerfied when I talk about this. But the attention economy demands lowest common denominator rules. It demands the easiest, most palatable approach, most spoon feeding possible. Because anything more complicated than that, you don't have time to do. You don't have time to read. You don't have time to engage with. So. If you're going to, for example, if you're going to read an article, you don't want to read an in-depth look at a wrestler getting his second chance in Kazakhstan. You want to read a quick recap of how your team did over the weekend and how, you th- how they think that will influence the second half and of the season or whatever. And that's really it. You don't want to see anything else because you don't have the time or the energy. You're busy. You're doing other stuff. You want to... It, it, this, these are like, would it be nice things? And then also, you don't have the money. You don't have the money to get the really nice publications that have more interesting coverage. And even if you can afford it, you, <laughs> you may get like an hour a week where you feel free enough to sit down and do that. By which time you've forgotten because you have other things to do in the meantime. So by creating that precarity on both levels, the economic precarity, but also like psychological precarity, like you're, you're always running around. You're always trying to get something done. You're always paying attention to whatever it is, but there is always something on your mind. And that prevents you from engaging honestly with something that isn't just given to you as a quick bite of content. The result of which is we have the audience that we have and, the media that that results in, because they, again, can say, much like if you tell store managers, you know, why do you open on Thanksgiving? They'll say, well, customers are driving the bus on this. They're not. That was never true. And much the same way, media companies now will say, well, we're really doing this based on local interest. But again, they're not. This is a a company-led move that then forces consumers to adapt to it. And then they can say, oh, this proves that we were right to do this. So it's a a never-ending cycle. And unfortunately, there aren't enough good options to create pushback on that. Because there's no angel investor who's out there funding a sports website that has incredible coverage of every league. There are very few people in the United States have the money to do that in the first place, and none of them are interested in doing that. They're interested in, you know, pretending to not be monsters.
1: You talked about, you know, this idea that audiences are driving the bus, so to speak. That all of the changes we've seen in the media landscape are, in fact, a response to uh, what the public wants. And we were also told that about the famous pivot to video where a bunch of outlets chased after video metrics that we now know were being inflated and just basically made up by Facebook. You know, the idea was that if you replaced articles with videos, then the modern consumer, your 21st century digital person would find that preferable. And the fact is that most people... Just kind of clicked away from those videos. They saw the first couple seconds of an ad before, you know, deciding, oh, I really wish this was an article. And eventually people learned the lesson of this, which is that, well, mm, do not trust Mark Zuckerberg, I think was the primary lesson of that.
2: Here's my question mm-hmm. Why did anybody trust him in the first place? That's what I want to know. Because it seems like the problem we have here is the foundational myth is that if somebody is rich, they know what they're doing. And I have never understood this myth in this country because American rich people are buffoons, and so are rich people in every other country. But American rich people get to be loud about it constantly, they get to be very obvious buffoons. And yet, There are a lot of people who invest a lot of time and energy into telling you why that is not the case. What it comes down to really is that the people trusting Mark Mark Zuckerberg were really looking for a way to, as we said already, get around all of these labor laws, get around labor regulations, reduce costs, throw workers out of the room, all of that. They were looking to slash everything. And these metrics were a great way to do it because if you're an administrator, if you're any kind of management at these companies, then you could point to those fake numbers and say, well, that makes me look good. I can put that on my resume. And then it turned out that those, by the time it turned out that those metrics were absolutely based on nothing, that they were ethereal, all of those people had gotten better jobs and it was other people left holding the bag. And so what what we've learned really is that the reason we hate the media so much is that we have accurately diagnosed it as not remotely responsive to our needs or desires and that it is led by people who have no interest in actually informing us. It never was, really. I mean, newspapers in this country sprang up as a function of party control. That's all it ever was. That's the problem that we're having. We We have a media that is not remotely meant to help us understand anything about the world. Uh,
1: there is a, another Substack article that I caught my eye this past week. It's by film critic, Vince Mancini and the article, uh, which has the headline pondering criticisms place in the post-human content ecosystem. Really goes over the course of his career writing about movies on the internet. He describes, you know, just 15 years ago, things felt a lot different than they do now. Quote, when I started, new sites were springing up every day and along with them, loyal readers and eventually weird sorts of communities. In 2007, I was your typical bored office drone, killing time with something that was then new. I read blogs. Old media was dreadfully dull back then, not to mention barely online in many cases. Blogs filled the void, giving us all something to read in between TPS reports and mental health breaks on the toilet. And something he wrote that really stuck out to me is this line here. 15 years ago, there were a lot of hungry writers like me and hungry readers out there, probably like you, who wanted to read them. I don't believe that that basic formula has changed. It's only the structures designed to facilitate it that have. There's still an audience for exactly the sorts of coverage that no longer exists. There is still an audience for like good writing about sports, about local politics, about All of these desks that have been shuttered at newspapers across the country, and yet capital can't seem to find a way to deliver anything for that audience. It's a product that, for whatever reason, isn't giving capital the return on investment they demand.
3: Yeah, I mean, part of that's just i think anyway that the the problem there is that nobody's selling anything anymore the only way that that businesses want to operate which goes to the whole ceos all being the same you know mindless drones is that you can't make money by creating a product anymore you're making money by like passing money from one shady bank or holding to another shady bank and holding by making a deal on a company loading that debt onto the company and then taking off with the parts and scraps for it like that's how you're making money you're not you're trying to just have money create and appear out of the ether without spending anything to do that we're not spending money on labor because we don't care if we actually make a product we only care about profit
1: yeah mancini's article goes on talking about how over the course of the 2010s, like the fact that he wrote funny reviews about movies went from being, you know, a reason why he had readers and an audience to a liability in his profession. You know, suddenly like criticism was not something that outlets were really looking to do because criticism made it harder to hobnob with the movie executives and the, studios who you'd want access to mancini was laid off from his from the website where he was writing reviews not because like his numbers were bad but because it just stopped being what the internet was looking to provide it was something that you know like the audience is still there it's just a matter of like capital doesn't want that writing out there it doesn't want funny snarky reviews of m- media any more than it wants investigations on what the oakland athletics owner is doing
3: yeah and it doesn't want targeted pieces about how the ceo of warner uh, warner brothers uh is driving the company into the ground somewhat deliberately um because i don't know if Anybody saw that, but there was a GQ article that was pulled because the editor-in-chief of GQ is making a movie that's being produced by Warner Brothers. So media exists to the point that it exists to create consolidation around people already in power and, and things that are already in power. They're manufacturing consent by making sure that this is the only thing we see.
2: Which, by the way, the fact that that could happen, a, a move that breathtakingly obviously corrupt could happen at with that GQ article tells you something about the composition of the people who are produce, not producing, sorry – who are managing and editing at these media companies. Because an editor is supposed to be somebody who assigns or helps you decide on topics for articles, corrects them, rewrites them, and so on. What an editor often is these days is – Who has the most elite degree and the friendships with the most like powerful people who we need to get in good with right now? So part of the problem, too, is that we there is very little reinforcement coming if you're a traditional shoe leather type of journalist, because we have completely devalued humanities education in this country. And the way we have devalued it is by making it impossible to find a job with a humanities education that isn't, you know, minimum wage stuff. That's not entirely true, but it is the perception of students heading into college. And when your choices are, I could do business or STEM and have a career that allows me to make a some amount of money and maybe down the line, take care of my parents when they get too old and and that sort of thing. Or I could do a humanities education and starve to death for the rest of my life or work bad minimum wage jobs on endless repeat. I know which one I'm going to choose that popular perception then becomes reality, which, you know, negative feedback loop for the rest of the time. The reason Capital doesn't want that writing out there is because they don't want examples of genuinely original, interesting, creative writing, partly because it doesn't help with trying to keep everything under wraps, but also because it creates this appearance that the only way to get any kind of job in this industry is to be a, a, a stooge which already tons of their management guys are. I mean, look at all of the people in that New York Times room explaining this stuff to the sports desk. None of those people got where they are based on the strength of their writing. They got there by glad-handing. They got there by greasing the right palms. They got there by playing office politics. And so there is no... The audience exists... But this incestuous relationship that all these media elites have with each other ensures that there is no one interested in serving that audience because all these people care about is keeping their resumes up to par, is making money for themselves and their bosses. They don't care about the mission of any of these companies. And I I think that's why it's only journalist-led publications, which, again you know, mentioning them again, but defector is a great example because they openly endorse that model. They say, no, we're not gonna be corporate. We're not gonna grow endlessly. We're not going to invest all our money in a bunch of stuff that will just go down the drain. We're gonna try to grow sustainably. And so far they've been proven right.
1: Yeah. I I do think it's notable that like the two articles we've been talking about for this segment have both been, you know, Substacks, or you know, some sort of independent outlet that the writer has a modicum of control over. You know, these are two writers in Mancini and O'Neill who have been on my radar, on my Twitter feed f- to some extent for probably a decade or more. And when that started, they probably had steady jobs, and now they have these substacks, these outlets of their own that where they. Beg for subscribers and hope that they can make ends meet that way, which kind of says it all in itself. But I, I I want to end this show by contrasting the visions that these articles offer in the end. Mancini offers one pessimistic road it could go down. Quote, Search terms and Facebook shares drive so much traffic now that management has begun to assume that the writer-reader relationship is not only less important, but doesn't matter. Humanity regarded as an inefficiency to be stamped out. How else to explain this past week's IO9 flap, which started when an AI allegedly unilaterally posted, as Variety called it, a Star Wars article full of errors? Even that verbiage feels generous, considering the article in question was titled A Chronological List of Star Wars Movies and TV Shows, which, here I'll note, was not chronological and did not have everything it should have had on the list. But other than that, the AI did
3: perfectly. Other than being completely wrong, it was great. Yeah.
2: And by the way, an article that was an article, quote unquote, that was disavowed. By the publication, the editor for the publication did the job every editor should be doing and said, this happened without any of our inputs. We had no idea this was going to happen.
1: Yeah. Continuing, quote, That an AI couldn't handle that task is indeed hilarious, but consider what it means when it becomes a business priority to list Star Wars movies in chronological order. Quote, Editorial bots writing posts meant to be consumed by ad bots, as David Roth described it. That is one way the future for media could look. You know, AI regurgitating its own vomit until there's nothing on the internet that's worth reading. Or if there is, it's buried so far underneath the garbage that you'd never be able to find it. And then Luke O'Neill's article, conversely, ends with a lengthy interview between him and Olivia Aylmer of the Freelance Solidarity Project, where the two of them discussed like, the possibility of freelancers, people without steady writing gigs or you know, without paid positions at outlets, could band together to, at the very least, make their conditions more tolerable. Because as things stand, freelancers have to deal with, you know, outlets that have to be harassed into paying them at all, waiting months to get paychecks for articles long delivered for reporting that was done a long time ago. You know, they have to do a lot of work before they ever see a dime from it and where frankly the money just isn't that great at the end of the day. From solidarity, you can have, like, something better. It Aylmer says this. We asked ourselves, what would we have wanted to have access to when we were first starting out at Freelancers? How could we centralize the resources FSP members have built over the years, as well as resources across the internet, and organizations that have been doing great work as well? You know, they've built, like, a freelancing guide for people who are just starting out it it's a place where there is at least a little more security in writing than there ever will be if like people have to go it alone against the ai-powered editor bots and i think it's that positive note that we should end this episode on because Everything else we've talked about has been kind of miserable. For this week, I'm Ryan.
3: I'm Lou.
2: I was Noah.
1: And this was Punching Out. I'll punch you I'll punch
0: you You've been listening I'll punch you to now. Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching punch Out Leo.